that was definitely the clap of like a 5.15 on a Sunday afternoon, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, hi everyone. Um, I hope you've had a really, really wonderful conference. Um, I always find it really re-energizing to be surrounded by really like thoughtful, kind people working extremely hard to make the world a safer, more flourishing place. Um, and I also didn't come across any forum articles that made me want to cry this weekend, so that was also <laughs> uh, great. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce Marcus Davis and Peter Walderford uh, for the closing session of this year's EAG Bay Area. This final session will include some closing words, followed by an update from Marcus and Peter on what they're doing at Rethink Priorities and what they're excited about. So as a reminder, if you have any questions, you can submit them on the Swapcard app. We'll have about 15 minutes of Q&A um, at the end of the session. And then Peter and Marcus will be hosting office hours in room 208 directly after the talk. So you can catch them there. Um, Marcus is a co-founder and co-CEO at Rethink Priorities, where he leads research and strategy. Prior to running Rethink Priorities, he was a co-founder of Charity Entrepreneurship and Charity Science Health. Marcus manages RP's animal welfare research and global health and development research. Peter is co-CEO of Rethink Priorities, focused on long-termism and EA movement building research. Prior to running Rethink, he was a data scientist in industry for five years. Uh, he's a top 20 forecaster on Metaculus and also has a triple master rank on Kaggle, which is an international data science competition. So please join me in welcoming Marcus and Peter for the closing session. Thank you for that introduction, Sim. Thank you all for coming. Um, delighted to get a chance to do this, especially with Peter, to tell you all about Rethink Priorities, our organization that works on research doing looking into research across multiple calls areas. But before we get into the details of what Rethink Priorities works on, we really wanted to get a chance to give you a little bit of background on ourselves, something I think not a lot of you may have. So let's go back about a decade. I was, I was an audio engineer about a decade ago. So I spent most of my days producing music and listening to music uh, and helping other people, I guess, fulfill their musical ambitions. However, that may sound kind of cool, but like at the time, I really thought nothing is less cool than listening to literally the same song play hour after hour after hour, make small tweaks. At the time, I was much more of a, a person who was very interested in science philosophy, who had a interest in audio engineering on the side. What were you doing, Peter? Yeah, so I went to college to study political science. I really kind of wanted to be a political science professor to get a political science PhD. Um, but I was just learning about effective altruism in 2012. I talked to a guy named Will McCaskill and asked him kind of what he thought about my political science PhD plans. And he was basically like, that's not really that cool. You should use, you should use the 80,000 hours framework to think through your career. This was kind of the new thing at the time. So I thought through my career, I used the 80,000 hours framework. And I kind of decided to reskill into data science go into industry, kind of do earning to give um, back when that was a popular thing to do. Um, and I spent kind of the next five years like doing, learning a lot about software, but I also was like very involved in the EA community um, and volunteered at a bunch of organizations. 
But kind of coming to Chicago for my first job as a data scientist, um, that's actually what led me to meet Marcus. Basically, I was in this big new city. I didn't have any friends. Um, so I did what kind of anyone in 2014 did when they wanted to make friends, which was go to meetup.com. So on meetup.com, I was like scrolling through the meetups, thinking about what would be interesting, who I wanted to meet. And I saw a book club for Peter Singer's The Life You Can Save. And I was like, that's cool. I want to go meet the kind of people that want to talk about Peter Singer. The person running that book club was Marcus. Marcus loved the book. He knew a lot about utilitarianism, consequentialism, Peter Singer's arguments. But he had never heard of effective altruism. This was back in 2014. We didn't have all the reach that we have now. We didn't have the New York Times media coverage or any of that stuff. But I told him about effective altruism, and he took the giving what we can pledge that night. That's impact. <laughs> so um, we kind of volunteered and worked together at various different organizations until we decided in 2018 to co-found Rethink Priorities. So that brings us to what we wanted to talk to you about today, is Rethink Priorities, what we do, and why it's cool. Um, our mission is kind of similar to a lot of organizations out there. We address global priorities, we research solutions and strategies, mobilize resources, empower our team and others, and work with a lot of other organizations to help them make better decisions. And our kind of vision is that we hope there will someday be a world where all humans and non-humans can flourish their full potential and we achieve existential security. Um, so RP is kind of three things. We're first a consultancy. So we do commissioned work from other organizations. They tell us kind of what research would be helpful for them in making decisions. We do that research, and we give it back to them to help them form their decisions. We're also a think tank, so that means we have our own ideas about what kind of research we want to do, and we do that, and we kind of then give it also to stakeholder organizations, kind of giving maybe what they wish they had asked for but didn't know that they wanted. And then lastly, something we've been doing a lot more recently is we've been kind of um, trying to be an accelerator, an incubator, a base for new projects, kind of lending our operations support to help other organizations and kind of build the fields that we want to be a part of. Um, so this is kind of our, our impact wheel, our theory of change. Basically, we um, conduct research and analysis, investigate global priorities, how to address them. We then communicate those priorities to our stakeholders, to the organizations that we want to help them make better decisions. Um, they use that to do what they do best, make better decisions, make better grants, go out in the world, influence policy, et cetera. And then we collect information from them um, informally and formally. We use that to kind of rethink our strategy, even rethink our priorities, and decide um, what we want to do next. And that starts the whole wheel all over again. So, some of you may be aware, Rethink Priorities has grown quite a bit in the last year or so. In fact, we've hired more than 30 people in 2022. Uh, we're up to about 65 permanent staff with about 55 of that full-time equivalent. We're on track to spend about $10 million in 2023. And last year, we did about 60 pieces of research, with a third of that being under the consultancy model that Peter just mentioned. So this is that growth visualized across departments, uh, but this may be a little abstract. Here's this growth visualized across people. So this is us at EAG Bay Area in 2019. And this is our September team retreat last year. So 
obviously things have changed a bunch, but what are all of these wonderful people doing? Well, we work on a range of issues, as we've mentioned. So we work on animal welfare, global health and development, AI governance and strategy, general long-termism, our newest department, our worldview investigations team, surveys, special projects, and finally, core operations. Um, I oversee the animal welfare, global health and development, and worldview investigations team, while Peter oversees the other departments. And I want to make a huge caveat here. The cooperations team keeps our lights on and running, and it's a huge part of our organization. But I'm mostly just going to set that to the side and get into the call-specific areas that we work on. So starting with the areas that uh, I oversee and thinking about, thinking about how much work we, we do on all these things. So we spend about a third of our time roughly on animal welfare, a third of the time Peter oversees on long-termism, about 15% or so on global health and development maybe 10% on surveys, and perhaps the most on-brand fact you're gonna hear is last year we did about 80,000 hours of person work. <laughs> so, animal welfare. Uh, the work we do largely consists of the theory of change that Peter outlined, where we consult with funders and groups to try to find effective and cost-effective interventions. This work spans across within animal welfare, farm animals, wild animals, and invertebrates. Uh, an example of something we recently have done is uh, over the last month, we published a report on how meat-free meal selection varies in the presence of meat-free options, in particular, high-quality meat-free analogs. So you may be thinking, what's cool about all of this? Well, I think it's pretty cool if you're interested in helping the great majority of sentient beings on the planet, but it's also cool if you just like puppies and kittens and think pigs and chickens are pretty much just like puppies and kittens. So that's animal welfare. As to another department I oversee, global health and development, Again, the theory of change is pretty similar here. We're working with funders and groups, but in this case, we're looking to understand the effectiveness of interventions in the global health development space, mostly helping people in low and, middle, low and middle income countries. So uh, one perhaps distinction between, say, the traditional, uh, traditional highly reviewed charity by Giftwell is we're taking a more uh, taking an approach that doesn't necessarily rely so much on, on having high quality RCTs, but still overall has a good body of evidence that this will be on net valuable. So again, in this space, recently one thing we've done is we looked into livelihood interventions. So these are interventions designed to increase the income of people in Sub-Saharan Africa. Again, why might this be cool? Well, one reason this might be cool is you like EA Classic. So you wanna do things that have a higher probability of success, help a lot, large number of people, and you're like highly confident that that's the thing that's going to happen. Moving on, so uh, our newest department I mentioned, Worldview Investigations. This team looks at understanding how can we best figure out like, what are the important questions about uh, what's different between uh, different call areas, what helps us, uh, what are the things that will help us prioritize between and within causes. Uh, so some of you may be aware, over the last month, excuse, over the last month we finalized publication of work on a more weight sequence, which Bob Fisher gave a talk on over this weekend, which investigated literally over 100 possible different traits for different animals on capacity of welfare for over 10 different species. So moving beyond that, we, this year we're really focused on investigating how can we best figure out how you would go about distributing long-termism between long-termism and non-long-termism. Obviously, a trivially simple problem. <laughs> we can figure it out, I'm sure. But one thing you might be thinking is, well, some of you may really be into this idea. Well, yeah, I definitely am. This sounds cool, but this is really only cool if you like applied philosophy which is usually not a thing you could say is cool, but I think in this audience, I could kind of get away with it. So there. Yeah, so that brings me to my half of the organization. Like Marcus said, we're co-CEOs, so we kind of split the organization 
and half um, by kind of content area. Um, so one area that I'm overseeing is our AI governance and strategy team. Um, so this department, we also are working with funders and we're kind of trying to tackle a key question of basically how should firms, governments, other actors plan for and respond to a potential development of very capable AI systems, kind of with an eye to make sure that that deployment is broadly beneficial. Um, it's important to know that AI governance involves a lot of policy work, but it's not necessarily just about laws and regulations from governments, but also can be about policies that individual labs or companies can adopt. Um, and the strategy aspect involves not just policy, but also just understanding um, the various scenarios that capable AI systems may end up posing and kind of ways that we might end up reacting to that. Um, so a lot of our work is kind of not um, publicly shared, but one thing we did recently put on the EA forum is an analysis of AI diffusion, which is basically an idea of once a top AI lab produces a frontier technology that's kind of on the edge of capabilities like GPT-3, how long does it take for another lab to create the same technology? And this may help us understand maybe some interlab racing dynamics. Um, I think the AI governance strategy team is pretty cool. It's especially cool if you want to make sure that we don't all die in some AI hellscape um, nightmare scenario. Maybe that's not cool, maybe that's more scary, but that's the kind of thing that we're trying to think about. Um, also, we have a general long-termism team. So this is kind of broadening our long-termist research portfolio to not just be about AI, though this team may work on AI as well. Um, and we're kind of interested in exploring long-termist entrepreneurship projects, as well as kind of clarifying our own um, views about long-termism and like what kind of projects we might want to prioritize. Um, we recently published also on the EA forum kind of some analysis of projects that we were considering incubating, but have so far set aside um, for now. Um, we think this team is really cool, especially if you like thinking through big picture strategic problems, but don't want to have to argue about them on the internet. Um, I also oversee our survey team. Um, this works kind of across different cause areas. So not just long-termism, but also like animals, global health and development, the EA movement. Um, you may know us most from the EA survey we run every year to try to better understand the EA community. Um, so we work with various organizations to run polling for them, um, do market testing, help them understand their reach. But we're also interested in doing some of our own work as well that may be broadly useful to the entire EA community, such as like kind of how the general public thinks about various issues um, that are relevant to effective altruism. Um, I think a lot of our work is, because it's client-driven, it tends to be pretty secret. So I feel like having secrets is kind of cool. Um, so that's what makes the survey team especially cool. Um, lastly, I oversee our new um, special projects department. Um, so the idea is kind of over the past five years running Rethink Priorities, we've like built a lot of operations capacity. And we kind of want to help um, provide that to other new organizations to help them run their projects more smoothly. Uh, maybe you're like a top researcher and you want to start your own research organization, but you don't know anything about how to run an organization or you want to make sure that at least everything you're doing is legal and well run so we can kind of provide um, services like that. We can provide a lot of different operation services to other organizations. Um, one example is EPOC, an AI research organization. 
Um, we fiscally sponsor them. We don't tell them what to do. We don't set their strategy, but we help them handle their money and grants. We help them provide tax deductibility. And we also help them run a hiring round that allowed them to double the size of their team without um, having to figure out how to do that on their own or spend their own time on that. Given that set of things, it's a lot of different topics. The number one question we typically get is, why do we work on so many causes? And there are a number of reasons for this, though I think the three primary ones are listed here. So a large amount of resources aren't really fungible across these different areas. Uh, for ourselves in particular, there may be diminishing returns to focus on, on any one priority area, and just deep-seated significant uncertainty about which priority area is actually the best to work on. These three things combine to make us think, hey, we aren't going to convince GiveWell to work on animals. We're definitely not going to convince Anthropic to work on global health. But what we may do is do high-quality research across many of these areas, and this would be better overall for everyone. Easier, definitely, than trying to figure out which of these to specialize in and then convince everyone that's the best thing to do. There are a lot of other practical benefits of this. So teams can have much greater access to resources, staff. Teams can have uh, easy access to support other researchers, both their uh, researchers with specialties outside of the normal field, but also just having different people to bounce ideas off of. There is, uh, there's, uh, within the organization, we also, this can help us build capacity, help reputation, maintain relationships, and also give us flexibility in maintaining option value for the future. Yeah, so if that sounds interesting for you, we're happy to hijack this closing talk to make a pitch for our um, roles. I can't believe that EA Global let us do this, um, but <laughs> we're hiring for a lot of different roles, um, an AI governance and strategy research manager, new roles on our worldview investigations team. Um, we're also soliciting interest for roles we may open later this year. Um, so one way to see our current roles is going to careers.rethinkparties.org. Um, also welcome for you to sign up to our newsletter to get notified about new roles and opportunities as they open and also just kind of hear more about what we're up to. Um, yeah, so thanks so much for coming to our talk. Hopefully we answered some of your questions, but we're really keen to have more Q&A to help you better understand Rethink Parties and what we do, but thanks so much. Great, thanks very much. Yeah, so if you can, um, if you have questions, you can submit them via the Swapcard app. Um, but I will just start with, yeah, how did you get so big so fast? Um, where did the where did the funding come from? Ooh, uh, many places. Uh, so, I, I, in some senses, uh, it's not so big so fast. Uh, Rethink Priorities existed since January 2018, mm -hmm. and for much of that time, we were 10 people or under. It wasn't until uh, 2022 at the beginning of the year where we really took off and it was after pitching a number of funders uh, So there's some major players in the space you may be aware of open fill is one of them but also EA funds individual donors who are interested in our work and Through a combination of pitching those funders with a, a, a promising plan having established a strong track record in many of these domains we were able to uh, Develop a, a plan to to scale quickly and of course again. I, I should mention because we we didn't get into it None of this would be possible without our strong operations support and like how, how strong the operations team is. Mm -hmm. And how did you know it was the right time to kind of like expand in 2022? Expand into a different... It, it just to sort of grow the team. When, how did you know that was the right time to kind of step up? 
uh, and I guess there are, are a number of different factors. So one is we thought at the time there seemed to be the appetite and interest in uh, us working further in many of these areas. So we we regularly uh, at the end of every year uh, and get on a more regular basis as well. But particularly at the end of every year, we like interview a bunch of our, our most important stakeholders and get a sense of what they're interested in and what they'd like to see. And several of those stakeholders were interested in us growing, uh, growing in certain domains, and we take that into account. But more broadly, we were looking at, well, what are the opportunities in this space? If we do additional work, what could it be? And how valuable do we think it could be? And uh, across different domains, uh, it, it seemed to be the right time to grow. And uh, some of the growth is, again, kind of implicit. So we, we, we hire 30 people, but if you think that you, you want to hire 20 research staff, some of those, you need to hire X number of operations staff mm -hmm. to support them. So uh, some of, the, the, some of our, uh, our growth is going to kind of be baked in. As we hire X number of researchers, we always need to hire Y number of operations staff to support them. Yeah. Also, the year before, we kind of did a bit of a scaling simulation by having a very large internship program. I think we brought on like a dozen interns. And the idea was that if like the internship program goes poorly, the interns already have a set leave date. Maybe they'll say bad things about us, but at least we didn't break any employment laws or anything. Mm -hmm. And if the internship went really well, like that would prove to us that like, oh, we actually are capable of taking on a bunch of new researchers and giving them productive things to do. And so like kind of seeing that internship program in 2021 go really well was then kind of what gave us the confidence to start laying down the groundwork to hire more researchers. Great. And have you guys sort of like updated strategy or changed the way you've you've been thinking about things given changes in the community? Of course. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, I mean, there's many possible answers to this question. I guess I would say, uh, well, obviously, unfortunately, I think the funding landscape is a bit different than it was six months ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not sure how much value there is into diving too deeply into that. But more broadly, I guess, uh, strategy-wise, uh, six months ago, seven months ago, I thought working on global health and development was great. Preventing people from dying from preventable, preventable diseases was still great in that the same thing kind of reasoning applies to animal welfare or, or general long-termism, ensuring that we survive uh, beyond potential extinction risk all still seemed great. So uh, strategy-wise, like it's, I, I guess the, the changes over the landscape recently haven't, haven't so much haven't so much altered like as the fundamental things we're aiming at so much as the best way to go about them. So uh, I think this year is like much less likely we're going to, uh, very unlikely we will hire 30 people. I'll, I'll put it that way. Yeah. Um, but you're hiring a few, as noted. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yeah, still hiring. Mm -hmm. um, great. And then classic question. So what have your biggest successes been and then biggest, we, we can call them lessons learned. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of lessons learned. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. This is hard. Uh, I think it depends on uh, depends on your worldview. But I guess it's a step back. I mean, the fact that we scaled the organization successfully at this side. When uh, I met Peter, there were no e organizations mm -hmm. at this side, including Openfield and Gibwell. Um, so I feel that's some type of accomplishment. But that's not what you really mean. You want like impact out there in the world. Mm -hmm. I, I'd wager. The thing I felt like, sticking with the, my side of the organization, maybe Peter can answer for his side. The thing I feel like most significantly changed was we put, we kind of helped put invertebrates as a thing that people should care about uh, through our initial invertebrate sentience research way back. I, I, I see at least one shrimp, two, 
I think shrimp welfare hats right now in the crowd in three. Yeah, yeah. So th <laughs> this is all downstream from that initial work on vertebrate sentience, which I also think helped burnish our reputation that allowed us to, to demonstrate that we could do high quality work in the area that could help us expand out into other domains. Yeah, definitely. I think this is really convenient to say, uh, but I think some of our best work is kind of not actually particularly public. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, so like think about how cool we are and just like mentally multiply that in your head <laughs> <laughs> for all the things that you can't hear about, but I promise are real. I can, I can vouch for one small secret cool thing. There we go. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> and then the lessons learned, not, not escaping that. <laughs> oh, dang, they're onto us. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess it depends what you mean. Um, Running organization of, I guess, the size we have is not something I had previously done before. And as the organization scales up, naturally, uh, there are additional challenges from, um, it's, it's a lot different when we started late 2019, I think, excuse me, late 2018, when I was directly, like, if I wanted to know what's happening in the organization, I literally just talked to everyone, like, once a week anyway, right? But now if I want to know what's happening, we need many different types of uh, uh Make sure our project management systems are on point such that we can we can uh understand where everything is and where, where everyone's thinking without having some like giant group meeting uh, team meetings are really expensive now mm -hmm. these full team meetings I, I think that's probably that's not so much a lesson learned of a mistake but it's a thing that i think we were thinking a lot about as we scaled and we, we try to prepare a lot for but of course actually executing it you know you, you, you try to learn as and adapt as things go on yeah i think the biggest lesson learned from me is like what it takes to get impact out of a research report. I think when we both started, we kind of had a very naive view that you would just write research and you would like put it on the internet and then like magic would happen <laughs> basically. Like, I don't know, the right people would just know to read it. They would like change their views, make so much better decisions and like there'd be puppies and rainbows and unicorns. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, this dream's definitely not the case. It's actually like, I feel like most of the work to get impact out of a report actually comes after the report is written, like kind of knowing in advance who your target audience is, like what your intentions for the research are supposed to be, how you're going to go about actually achieving those um, impact, kind of like specifically emailing and pestering people to make sure they actually read the report, make sure they understand the report, be there to answer their questions, um, kind of follow up to see if like any of your recommendations are made. I think also a lot of research reports kind of just generate more research questions rather than answers. And so like it can be kind of like a multi-year process. Like I think a lot of our invertebrate welfare work that Marcus was talking about kind of really took like 10, 12 reports over a series of years to like actually come to something that we felt like was sufficiently actionable. That was a much better answer than mine. Yeah. Then <laughs> um, I guess speaking of impact, so how do you evaluate on, on your side the impact of your long-termist projects? Is it kind of just each project on its own merits, or is there kind of metrics that you look at? Yeah, we're still um, figuring out the metrics side of things. I think that's something we want the Worldview Investigations team to take a look at, is like kind of figuring out like what's the actual concrete value from a long-termist report, especially because I guess kind of inherently when you're talking about the, the long-term future, it's gonna take a while to actually observe that. But we're kind of thinking like a lot of the things that we're working on, we can kind of know sort of like, are we improving our own understanding? So I think when we started the AI governance and strategy team a year ago, I personally at least had absolutely no idea what kind of 
the AI relevant AI scenarios are and like how we would manage them. And like people would ask me what the plan was, and I would just say the plan is to make a plan. And um, I think kind of more this year, I feel like I have a much better relevant understanding of the scenarios that may be involved and kind of like what sort of actions we might want to take to make sure that those scenarios go well. And so like improving my own strategic clarity, um, I feel like is at least um, definitely some progress. And then also, I guess just like we work really closely with our stakeholders. And because they're funding our work and using our work, I feel like the incentives are pretty well aligned there, at least, that they would be like pretty incentivized to tell us to stop working for them if it's like not, not really working out. Like They're paying a lot of money, I guess, to keep this going. So hopefully, they're finding some sort of value in that. And we talk to them every year. But yeah, for terms of concrete metrics, I think that's definitely something we want to work on. Mm -hmm. And I guess this feeds into the next question around how you decide what to work on. I guess with the client-facing work, well, that's easy. They just tell you what to work on. Um, but internally, how do you prioritize? This is really hard. Mm -hmm. So that's the, I mean, the baseline answer is, uh, I think it depends a lot based on which area you're focused in. So some some of these spaces are much more developed than others. There's, there's obviously many, many a priority list about what things to focus on when global health and development. Uh, some on animal welfare, some, some public on long-termism, but relatively speaking, there's a lot more like best guesses about where to, where to start looking on global health and development. And from those type of lists, we can start composing, well, here's a list of possible projects. We often like take that type of list, uh, look at it across a number of different dimensions. Uh, it's like, oh, these seem promising. And then we talk to our stakeholders and say, hey, what are you thinking about this? Also, one of the most important things is, is anyone actually secretly working on this and hasn't told anyone? <laughs> so often the answer is yes. And that, or someone actually, I did a thing on that two years ago, and like we came to this conclusion. Like that's actually one of the biggest factors in figuring out what what actually still needs to be done. Uh, but putting that aside, um, there are a number of different ways of, of of thinking about it. But I think there's some a combination of some type of use of like uh, sometimes using explicit weighted factor models, but sometimes being opportunistic, where like this looks really high value, and uh, under the, the cir present circumstances, it's, it's pretty clear it's above the bar of other things. So I, I think it's uh, some mix of some combination of those factors. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you're, you guys are probably one of the biggest sort of employers and hirers of researchers. What advice do you have for independent researchers or people founding small new research teams? Yeah, I'd say like, I think it kind of really depends on what kind of research you want to do. I think yeah, for Rethink Parties, we tend to employ a lot of um, like generalist effective altruism research staff or you don't actually have to identify with EA. We have like a people with a wide variety of affiliations with EA. But I think it's like can be pretty useful to practice on your own insofar as you have time. Like, like there's a lot of reports out there already, um, some including ours. A lot of them have questions at the end, like questions we'd like to consider if we had more time. Or sometimes people just outright post research agendas or lists of questions I wish someone would work on. And those are definitely things that kind of anyone can grab and grapple with. And I think like it can, if you're trying to develop your own research sense, like, is this a good fit for me? Am I good at it? I think just kind of grab a question, any question, spend like five, 10 hours trying to come up with an answer. Maybe it's a really bad answer, um, but you've at least learned something. And you can then take that, put it on the EA forum, but don't just stop there. Also pester people to read it, get their feedback. And like maybe it's like really terrible, but you'll like at least learn an awful lot in the process. Um, I had to write so many bad EA forum posts 
before I started writing okay EA forum posts, mm -hmm. maybe even a good one. Um, but I think that's like a pretty easy learning process that anyone can try. I also think, again, plugging our jobs. By applying to the jobs, we use heavy amount of work test tasks. I think kind of like some people tell me that engaging with those tasks has been very clarifying and helpful for them, even if they get rejected. Um, it can be a good way to test your fit. And we pay people to take those. So it's not, it's a compensated activity that hopefully you can then better fit into a work life that you already have or mm -hmm. yeah, be able to like get childcare in order to make more time to work on these sorts of things. I think that's helpful too. Could you spell out your process, your hiring process? Yeah, some of it varies by job, but generally we have like an application. Um, the application itself already kind of includes like a few um, questions that we're interested in people answering. Unfortunately, those aren't compensated, but then after it starts, we start paying people for their work. Mm -hmm. um, that's important to me. Um, and like, I think unlike a lot of other employers, we kind of don't really care about people's prior background. We don't care about their resume. Um, we don't even really want to know that much about who they are. We kind of are trying to grade blindly and trying to remove bias from the process. And we instead just want to see their answers to these like questions that we're asking. Kind of like one of our big hypotheses is it's like really hard to use someone's background to predict whether they'll do well at this kind of work. Like I've definitely seen like PhDs from Harvard that give like incredibly terrible answers and then like this one random kid in Lithuania like does a really great job at answering the questions. Mm -hmm. And like we found that to be far more predictive of success is like whether they can kind of successfully engage with the kinds of questions we're asking and we're constantly thinking about kind of what questions we want. So yeah, after you fill out the application process, there's usually yet another test task that's paid. And then um, usually we do like one one hour interview and then one final test task that's like usually about five hours long. Um, but that's about it. We try to keep the process pretty manageable. And you're all, you're all remote? Yeah, we're a 100% remote organization. We can hire in um, most countries. Mm -hmm. um, we like to employ people in their country of residence where they have work authorization. But we're also getting better at managing the visa process too for people that want to relocate. We can support that. Great. And you guys have a really good overview of kind of research areas across lots of different cause areas. So what do you think, like what areas or approaches do you think the, the community is currently underinvesting in, if any? This feels like a setup, but <laughs> the I, honestly, I feel like the questions I, as I've been overseeing the worldview investigations work, the more I think there should be lots and lots of people thinking about these things. Many of the questions aren't necessarily novel, but coming attempting to come to specific answers about them or to come to actionable insights about them would be novel. Uh, that's something I think like can use just a ton more attention. Uh, so obviously, uh, things we we're trying to. I stand by my statement that like we're not going to try to convince GiveWell to work on on animals or something like that. But uh, even within that constraint, uh, the types of uh, the types of questions that are are posed there. So uh, everything from decision theory and more uncertainty to empirical tractability of different interventions or its cost effectiveness. So like a lot of people have spent a lot of time thinking about like the cost effectiveness of different interventions, particularly on the global health and well-being side of things. But I think a lot of the the related or the related questions if you're thinking about how to compare within causes hasn't gone 
hadn't gotten that much attention. So, I'll, so a good example of that would, would be uh, I had Peter and I and many other people honestly had been thinking about the more weight stuff for like literally years, be- way before Rethink Priorities started, but no one had actually done it. Uh, no one had actually really attempted to answer the question until uh, I think we took a significant shot at it. Mm-hmm. So we've got a couple of questions about the secret research, unsurprisingly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so who is privy to all the secret research? I'm guessing you guys. Um, and is it, is it mostly just the private consulting? Is it just yeah, like Yeah, so it's, it's the consulting work, basically. Yeah. Like we do like a specific project for a specific client. The client then gets access to the work. I mean, we usually try to ask the client if we're able to publish the work, and we usually try to publish it if we can. Um, so like you may see on the EA forum, sometimes like we published work that like we did for a client. Um, sometimes there can be some delay in that process, mainly because the clients usually don't pay for the time necessary to publish the work. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of do some of that with our own money. Um, but oftentimes the work just kind of is yeah, like secret for some strategic reason or whatever. And so then we unfortunately can't can't share that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think the one that I was referring to was just sort of like very uninteresting. It was just like a, um, or like not very, it wasn't secret for any like particular reason. I guess it was just a survey at a, an event um, to get yeah. a favor of one example. Yeah, so you'll have to ask her why we can't publish. That. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, you could, but I think it wouldn't be very interesting to other people. Yeah. But yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so on the EA survey, so who came up with that? Yeah, I, I, it was a long time ago. Actually, the EA survey predates um, Rethink Priorities. Um, I remember, I feel like, I don't necessarily want to take credit if it's not due, but I feel like I came up with it. And at least I don't think anyone else who was involved is around still to challenge me. So, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I guess I'm undefeated there. Um, I mean, I think I vaguely recall that I was like pretty active on Less Wrong um, at the time, and they had like a Less Wrong survey, and I thought it would just be like pretty interesting to try to do that for the EA community. Um, I think a really fascinating historical fact is when I launched this, like everyone kind of hated it at first, and um, like they kind of thought it was like, oh, this is just going to be horribly unrepresentative, like you're not going to actually capture all of EA, we still don't even really know who's an EA and who's not. It's like really hard to define a very ambiguous population. Like how do you actually expect to, um, yeah, like make claims about an EA movement when you don't even know who's in the movement or how to reach them. And yeah, actually like the level of hate for the first two years almost got to the point where I wanted to just abandon the project. Yeah. Um, but eventually it somehow got started getting really popular and now people love it. So I'm glad we stuck with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm glad you stuck with it too. Thanks. Yeah. Um, and then, so you you spoke about incubating projects, and that you have incubated some, and then decided against incubating some. Wh- which are some of that you have incubated? Some that we have incubated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the our first kind of public launch of an incubated project is the Insect Institute, mm-hmm. um, run by Dustin. So we've been working on that for a while, and now kind of are publicly launching it. So there's like an EA forum post kind of explaining that and what that is. So that's kind of our first incubated project launch. Um, I expect future launches will probably be more long-termist oriented because I think that's kind of where our incubation project currently is, but we'll still definitely remain open to non-long-termist ideas as well. Great. Um, And then final um, and maybe most important um, question, 
you guys are great. Can you please start a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> well, Marcus has all the audio engineering expertise. As long as I don't have to edit it, <laughs> I might begin. Yeah. So stay tuned for 2023 podcast. <laughs> great. Um, thank you so much for your oh, time. So yeah. please join me in um, thanking Marcus and Peter.